Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. We're back with Vox Day, the three-time Hugo Award nominee, the author of SJW, Social Justice Warriors Always Lie, Taking Down the Thought Police and Conservative: How Conservatives Betrayed America. We'll put the links to those two fine books below. He also maintains a pair of popular blogs, which average over 2.2 million page views per month, voxday.blogspot.com. That's V-O-X-D-A-Y. How are you doing, brother? Nice to chat with you again. Good to see you again, too. So um, I'm just going to pause to allow everyone to make the Phil Collins uh, jokes, uh, twins separated at birth jokes and all that, uh, or, or the Lobot jokes, I think, based upon your, your headset. So now that that has been safely put behind us, uh, we're going to chat a little bit about free trade. Now, I, of course, come from the sort of Austrian school background, the objectivist school background. So the argument is that, you know, free trade is a glorious path to prosperity and oneness and peace and unity and harmony around the world. But you've got some arguments that I think are quite interesting that maybe cast a shadow on some of those sunlit glories. Um, What do you say? Well, I have to say, first of all, that I have literally never been more prepared for a discussion like this in my life. Uh, it's pure happenstance, but uh, I just finished putting the final touches on a pamphlet of sorts, an e-pamphlet of sorts that's going to be out on Amazon in the next couple of days. And it's called On the Question of Free Trade. And what that was, or what that is, is a transcript of a debate between myself and Dr. James Miller from Smith College. And like you and and like me, uh, a few years ago, uh, he's a serious, hardcore free trader. Uh, He's actually got his PhD from the University of Chicago, which is, you know, the signature freshwater school. Um, They're not Austrians, but they are every bit as hardcore about free trade as, as the Mises Institute. And it was very interesting. I, I think you'll, uh, Stefan, I think you'll find the, the debate interesting when you read it because you know, Dr. Miller did a really good job of summarizing uh, the conventional free trade case. You know, he, he hit everything. He hit how it benefits specialization, it benefits innovation, how it produces wealth for literally everyone. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was really a... Uh, virtuoso performance. The problem, as I pointed out, is that it was also, in my opinion, fundamentally an irrelevant one. And, and the reason is because what we're seeing with free trade, you know, the arguments being presented uh, for free trade, the, the arguments that you have for them, the arguments that I had for them, um, they're not new. You know, the, and most of them actually go back about 230 years. Um, you know, they, I mean, Smith and Ricardo won the argument with the mercantilists. You know, all of the objections to free trade since then have not been economic in uh, at their heart. They've maybe been political. They've maybe been, uh, you know, d- designed to protect various industries. But none of them are actually based on economics. You know, the, the argument was over. But what's changed and what even Dr. Miller agreed um, is different about the situation now is that we're no longer thinking about the free movement of capital and we're no longer thinking about the free movement of goods and and more importantly we're no longer thinking about the free movement of labor and services as theory now we're seeing what it actually does 
And that was, I think, um, aspects of that were relatively new to Dr. Miller. And I'm not pretending that I have all the answers. We, we simply do not have a good roundup of empirical evidence on a lot of these issues. But the issues are real and they're substantive. And the 200-year-old the conventional consensus theory does not address them. Well, and of course, back in the day, there were a number of economic environments and situations that they couldn't even, I think, have imagined to be the case. So, of course, uh, the, the first thing is that back when the original free trade arguments were being pro um, promulgated, there was really no such thing as completely fiat currency. Uh, there were, of course, central banks, but they were still gold-based uh, for the most part. So this idea that you could just print up this huge amount of money uh, on a whim uh, and that you could manipulate and control your currency in the way that modern central banking does, utterly unforeseen. Uh, there was, of course, a huge amount of labor that was required to move goods around, which gave a, a natural preference to local industries. Now, of course, some of the greatest uh, wealth of the uh, world can sort of squirt around on the intertubes uh, in a moment's notice. And um, there is a wide variety of um, cha changes, things that just unprecedented. The amount of wealth that's available now uh, and the degree to which that wealth can be used as um, collateral for more and more government borrowing and so on has created some significant distortions in the market. And last but not least, of course, um, there was no giant welfare state uh, back in the day. And the welfare state has made things very difficult when it comes to any kind of rational pricing for human labor. Because, of course, if what you're going to be paid is less than what you can get out of the welfare state, and in a lot of places in the U.S., uh, for a, like a single mom, for her to get off the welfare state and to achieve or to receive the similar amount of benefits, she's talking like $65,000 salary, which, you know, if you've got a couple of kids and maybe only high school or not even that, pretty hard to achieve that. So there's a lot of distortions going on now that are not part of the free market. I mean, central banking, not part of the free market, fiat currency, not chosen by the free market, the welfare state and so on. I guess you could say that squirting IP uh, around uh, the world is, is more part of the free market. But it's a very, very different environment than what was envisioned by people like Smith and Ricardo back in the day. No question. I mean, all of those points that you're raising are, are serious. They're all legitimate and they all need to be examined. But there's actually a, a, f a much more fundamental problem. And, and what that's related to is labor mobility. Now, um, when you talk to people about free trade, they often point to the free trade in the domestic United States as, as the basis for one of their arguments. You know, and, it, and it's not a bad argument. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a very reasonable argument. They say, well, look, uh, you know, the U.S. benefits greatly because we're able to uh, sell between Iowa and California and Minnesota and Mississippi freely. And, and that's true. But what they leave out of that equation is the fact that uh, part of what makes that work is that the U.S. has the highest rate of labor mobility in the world, and it has for you know, decades, if not over a century. Uh, to put it in perspective, the labor mo mobility rate in the U United States is 3.2% per year. In the European Union... Um, prior to the, the last couple of years, 
the rate with, from country to country within the European Union was 0.1%. So, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of, of labor mobility is so great in the United States that on average, um, only 50% of the working age population lives in its state of residence. So, you know, for example, I mean, you know, for me, um, I was born in Boston and then my parents moved to Minnesota by the time I was, um, you know, by the time I was, uh, while I was still a child. And so, um, so, you know, so my, my parents were not working from a fairly young age. My parents were not working in either of their original states of residence. Now that's not such a big problem when you're dealing with a single country, which is, you know, at that time, for the most part, still uh, a coherent nation. The problem is, if you apply that to the international scene, what that indicates is that by the time the average American, if we had if we had free trade on an international basis that operated similar to the domestic market, that means that forty nine percent of Americans would need to emigrate by the time they turn 35. And they would be replaced by other workers from other countries coming in uh, and, and competing for the specialties and industries that, that they were better suited for here. You know? I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I understand. So why would they need to emigrate to, to achieve some sort of income parity with what they could get at home? Yes, it, it, I mean for, for the same reason that you go to you move to California because you got a job offer that suits you there. The specialization, you know, one of the arguments that Dr. Miller presented, for example, was that um, the um, he talked about specialization. He talked about how you know because of free trade, you can um, a doctor can treat patients globally. You know, you can specialize in you know some. A very particular, you know, surgery or liver function or whatever, and and reach uh, um, patients everywhere. But what he left out of the equation, and what I pointed out is that that specialization is all going to take place somewhere. So, for example, um, if you want to work in robotics and you happen to have a, a talent for robotics, then you are probably going to have to move to South Korea, or possibly to Japan. Because that's where all the action in robotics is going to be. And so um, in much the same way, um, you know, the, for the same reason that, that you know, a girl grows up in Iowa and she moves out to California because she wants to be a star, she has to, she has to move to L.A. if she wants to do that. So um, you know, if we had true free trade, then the models, instead of all going to South Beach and L.A., and New York, they would be going to Paris, Milan, and Tokyo. You know, they wouldn't be able to stay in the United States because that's not where the competitive industry would be. Okay. Of course, one counterargument to that would be that um, those industries have developed to be geographically specific because there's no free trade. And if there were free trade, then it wouldn't all necessarily end up congregating in the same area but would disperse more. I don't think that... I don't think that that's true because in an economy, you typically see um, a competitive. Uh, you, you see competitive leaders. You, you, you tend to the, the more global things get, the fewer big winners there are going to be. 
And that's going to be true of industries as it is of companies and so forth. You know, uh, and, and, and that leads into another problem that we talked about. You know, he, um, you know for example, uh, before the, the internet and before globalization and that sort of thing, um, it used to be possible to grow up, uh, you know, grow a business in its home market. And then uh, you, know, you would have this battle internationally between, uh, say, Honda and General Motors and BMW and um, Ford. You know, the, the, those are, and all those companies would have their home market as their base and then they'd be competing on the global scale uh, from that basis. Well, nowadays, you don't have that because, you know, for example, if you were to start up something that was competing with Google, you do not have your home market anymore. Google's already there. You have no chance to um, even begin to grow up to a, a, a company that's at a level to compete with it because you're already having to compete on the global marketplace with the giant multinationals from the start. In some industries, that's okay. You know, in, for example, maybe you could compete in AI or maybe you could comp- compete in some you know, very specialized uh, areas that, that, that the multinationals don't really have an advantage. But if you're dealing in any sort of industry, any sort of big manufacturing or something, they're just going to be crushing people on economies of scale in a way that's never been seen before because they're working on an, on a global scale, whereas the startups don't have a you know they don't have a chance, and that's not even getting into the whole political influence. Well, okay, and, and the political influence is not usually part of the free trade argument as a whole, which is sort of more capitalism and less sort of capitalism based. But in right. th- this fear of of sort of big corporations. Um, of course, they, you know, when you're in the middle of a market and you look up and you see these giant corporations bestriding the world like Julius Caesar or Colossus, they seem impregnable and enormous and so on. But uh, you know, if you look at the turn of the last century, of the 100 biggest corporations around then, I think only four or five are still around. You know, They get big and then they get unwieldy and then they turn into dinosaurs and then there's some new mammal or some new innovation. You know, the, the biggest monopoly horse and buggy uh, company was then taken out by you know, some, uh, some guys who were producing cars in their basement and so on. And right. so this idea that there are these big giant economies of scale and they're, they're going to dominate the market from here to eternity. Now, certainly, if they, they, which they do, they get in bed with government and they create barriers to entry for other people and, and get special favors and deals from the government because they have the concentrated economic power which they can inject into the state to control it. And they have regulatory capture where they can go in and start managing all the regulations to make sure small. But, you know, in a free-er market... The large companies, which seem so impregnable, uh, generally end up folding um, over a certain amount of time. Oh, I agree. And, and I think that that is a, a definitely a, a potentially mitigating factor. But it doesn't change the fact that something has changed. You know, what has changed is you no longer have the ability to uh, grow up in your home market without um, facing immediate competition from, from foreign competitors, you know, we're not, it's, it's, it, it's just a whole, it's a whole additional level of competition that the startups have to deal with. Well, and if 
if though, I mean, in terms of being shielded from the market, I mean, that's the whole point of the incubation process with venture capitalists, right? That venture capitalists will give you enough money to sort of shield you from market demands while you develop your product. But usually the idea has to be really, really good for you to get a significant amount of fence-off time for you to grow. So you can still grow in a sort of greenhouse environment before being released into the wild, but um, it's not going to happen as the result of government. It's going to happen as the result of venture capitalists giving you enough seed capital that you don't have to be market focused while you're developing your product. Sure. And, and, you know, I, I actually work a fair amount with the, the VC startup uh, industry in Europe. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with that. The problem that I see is that, you know, there are already some signs that the amount of innovation is decreasing as a result of, of the, the process that I've been talking about, you know, Google. I mean, I, I've, I've worked. I know the guys at you know Google Business Ventures, both in uh, you know both in in Europe and in uh, San Francisco, and you know the big companies like that are actively out looking to snap up the small you know future competitors. Um, in a way, I think that um, was not necessarily the case when. Um, you know, when you're talking about the the Rockefellers or, or the Fords and that sort of thing. Now, again, I, I'm not saying that that is not a conclusive part or that's not a, a significant part of my case against free trade, but it is something that I think it's something that has clearly changed. And it's something that I think that that people on both sides of the debate really need to look into seriously. You know, the, the, one of the things that Dr. Miller and I both agreed on, despite the fact that we're you know, we, we disagreed fundamentally on a number of things. The main thing that we agreed on was that we need, both sides need more empirical evidence because it's fine to talk about the theories and all, but, um, and, and the logic is there on both sides. You know, both sides actually have fairly strong logical cases. The question is, who's right? You know, whose syllogism, who's syllogisms are backed up by what we're actually seeing happen? And I'm not, you know, I, I've dug around. I've been looking, looking at first the information on this. And because the situation is relatively new, we really don't know. Well, I mean, that is the great challenge with uh, economics when you go from theory to empiricism, in my opinion. Of course, for those, I'm sure, who may not be up to speed on this, the basic idea is that, uh, praxeologically speaking, two parties who are voluntarily exchanging are both benefiting, right? So if, uh, you know, if Vox has a pencil and I have a dollar and he wants my dollar more than he wants his pencil, but I want his pencil more than... um, I want his pencil more than I want my dollar. We exchange and we're both better off because no compulsion has been part of the exchange. And it, it, with the moment compulsion comes in, then you get a kind of win-lose situation. Well, and, and um, I, th- I think, the, and I think the, the core problem with, with that particular um, metric is that I agree that both parties are, both parties believe themselves to be better off at the moment the exchange is made. You know, the, the, that, that's true in theory. The problem is when people get it wrong. And, and over time, uh, you know, once you start bringing in time preferences and that sort of thing, um, you know, the fact is you know, people are not rational. We both know that. Um, people have different time preferences. And so uh, you, know, you might say, well, it's, it's, a, it's a good deal. It's, it's a, a great deal that you sold me that crack cocaine. Um, I'm happy to have the, the crack. You're happy to have the money. 
and then IOD and die. Well, okay. Um, actually, if we look at that exchange, it was not in my long-term best interest. You know, um, and so I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I like the praxeological approach. I think it's very useful. But I also think that it's a little bit naive to, and time-limited to simply look at the exchange only at the moment of the exchange and whether the people are, are, are happy with it or not. You know, the fact that you're happy with something doesn't mean that you actually did something in your own best interest. I certainly have made numerous poor decisions in my life that uh, were not in my best interest, even though I thought they were a good idea at the time. Well, of course, voluntary doesn't mean perfect. You know, you may get the girl of your dreams and then maybe you find a surprise when you undo the kilt. Uh, so, I mean, voluntary doesn't mean perfect. But what it does mean, of course, is that it's the best information that you have and the best choice. It, given that it's a choice you make at the moment, it's the best choice you want to make at the moment. And the degree to which people are irrational, well, sure, we can sort of certainly argue that at an individual level. But the thing is, we tend to learn, again, the, the guy who OD'd probably didn't, but we tend to learn over time and because we are the best managers of our own long-term right. self-interest. We learn over time. But the degree to which we let the government come in and start dictating terms, well, the government is much more corruptible and much more powerful than any particular individual. Well, that, that's true. And that's one of the arguments that, that Dr. Miller raised. And, and frankly, I think it is the strongest argument that the free trade side has in light of now, in light of the, the new information and new possibilities that are coming to the fore. Um, I even told him uh, during the debate, I said, you know, I need to come up with a better way to address the counter argument of, well, uh, you can't trust politicians. I'm not arguing that you can trust politicians. I totally agree. That, that to me is the fundamental problem with the with the protectionist approach uh however on the corruption side i don't think it's as clear cut uh, as as you and i might naturally tend to think both being you know libertarian minded and and uh intrinsically skeptical of of government uh, power the problem that i see is that i suspect that the Global multinationals are actually more uh, more corrupt and uh, less um, accountable than the politicians are. I mean, we may actually find ourselves, you know, because we talk about the, the when we talk about it in theory, we tend to talk about the individual transactions and that sort of thing. But once we start applying it to the real world, suddenly we realize that we're talking about these, you know, large uh, multinationals and. Let's face it, you know, they're not only uh, completely ruthless, but as we're seeing in places like North Carolina and that sort of thing, they don't shy away from just trying to dictate to the governments what, what laws are acceptable to be passed and that sort of thing. And, so, and, and it's also important to keep in mind that you know, corporations are creatures of government. They're not individuals. And for all that they may have you know, these synthetic, uh, synthetic juridical persons uh, legal approach. The fact of the matter is, they are creatures of government, and it's at least possible that by allowing free trade or freer trade to transfer power from national governments to multinational corporations, we may actually find ourselves as liberty-loving people 
essentially going from the frying pan into the fire. And that's something that I think we need to look very carefully at before assuming that everything's fine and dandy with that approach. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot in that. And I, you know, like yourself, um, they are creatures of government. They're created by governments. They're kind of legal fictions which allow people to take profits out of a particular business entity without being personally liable for losses. I mean, it's a one, it's like, you know, hey, I'd love to gamble too if I get to keep my winnings and somebody else eats, eats their shorts if I lose. That sounds wonderful, but uh, that, that didn't used to be the case. Like in the past, before corporations sort of came to their modern phenomenon, if the bank lost money, the bank owner lost his house. Uh, and that, of course, is, is no longer the case. And these issues that we're talking about, in general, there is this theory, which I'm sure you've heard a million times, which is that, you know, one government program creates distortions in the market or distortions in society, which then needs another government program, which creates its own distortions. You just got these sedimentary layers of fascism piling up over your head and breaking your neck. Because right. when it comes to these challenges, to me, it's hard to see how less government doesn't solve all of these in, in one way or another. There should be, of course, accountability for executives, um, you know, I mean – uh, how, how many people from the um, Wall Street protests went to jail? Hundreds and hundreds. How many people actually working in Wall Street after the financial crash went to jail? And the answer, of course, is zero because it's almost impossible to prosecute that stuff in any cost-effective way. Plus, of course, the government just wants to shake them down for billions of dollars in fines so that they can you know, stuff their own coffers. So why not just think about, you know, let's start loosening or, or making um, business owners more accountable for losses so that it's not just one way grab bag of, of pulling profits out without being liable for losses. And um, what about, um, of course, I've talked about this forever, getting rid of the welfare state, uh, getting rid of um, public sector union, getting rid of tenures, getting, you know, so that people can actually voluntarily negotiate for themselves. I'm just concerned that, you know, okay, we've got all these problems and it's creating all these distortions. So now let's add another layer of protectionism on top of that. And that's going to be the final solution. But of course, the protectionism is going to be captured by the very corporations that are supposed to be uh, controlled by it. And they'll just end up with more power. I support every single thing that you mentioned. Yeah, I, I support all of those things. I shake your hand. Um, actually, right here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I mean, it, it's important to understand that, that uh, the objections that I'm raising to free trade are not because I uh, want to add another government uh, layer. Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, I think that that might be a layer that we need in addition to removing all these other layers that we're talking about. My, my fear is that by keeping the various layers that you described, that we've already got, that by thinking that we're going to you know, get rid of this one layer here and, and increasing free trade, we might find that we've actually um, done precisely the opposite of, of, of what we want to support. I mean, I would like to see – the thing that I think that would um, most effectively address the problem right away is if corporations were treated like actual people. I mean, the – if a corporation breaks a law, goes to jail. You know, if, if, if it breaks a law that requires uh, 15 years, then the corporation is suspended for 15 years. You know, um, if, if we actually treated corporations the way that we treat real people, I suspect the corporations would actually behave considerably better. You know, you wouldn't see them uh, breaking the law with impunity. You know, the reason that they love paying fines 
is because typically the fines do not even amount to 2% of whatever they benefited from. If you look at the, uh, what was that, um, that there's some uh, currency uh, exchange rate manipulation that was taking place in, in England. And, um, you know, I mean, they made... Oh, I think it was the, the LIBOR scandal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they, they made ridiculous sums of money off that. And then they were hit with, you know, a fine that was in the millions, which I'm sure sounds very impressive at all. But, you know, if, if I could break a law and, and make 98%, you know, uh, and, and only pay 2% of my proceeds in a fine... I mean, that's a wonderful business to get in. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to? It's not like the executives even pay that out of their own pockets. What they do is they, you know, they they lower the bonuses for their employees, or they raise the price of their goods and services for their customers. So they get to keep all of the profits that comes out, and it's now yours permanently when you pull it out through the biosphere of the corporation. And then, if there are costs, it's not like you got to go and put that back in yourself. What you have to do? Hang on, let me just fix my earpiece. me back yeah there we go what you have to do is uh you then pass the costs off to someone else so you get to keep all the profits and other people have to absorb the losses exactly and so you know i mean if you think about it the the corporatist uh economy that we have now um is is fundamentally it's it's like this is a contradiction in terms but it's it's essentially an international fascism you know, you've got the, the you've got the, you don't have the national angle. In fact, you know the the international corporatist approach is, as we know, you know, destroying nations. Um, and so, you know, the the I just I really think that we are entering a new epoch in in our understanding of economics and our understanding of. Uh, really political economy you know the 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 distinction between politics and economics is to a large extent artificial and it used to be called political economy and i don't think that we can really understand what is happening around us what is going to be happening as these new developments continue to occur um and i don't think that we can understand what we should be doing about them unless we broaden our perspective again and look at it from a a political economy approach rather than a purely um, econometric uh, statistical you know very rigid and and uh, narrow approach yeah and i don't have any answers to this particular problem vox but one of the things that has really troubled me over the last couple of years looking at the economy is, as, as you know, there's a bell curve of intelligence uh, in the general population. And no one knows how to substantially change someone's intelligence. You know, by the time you're grown, you, you are your height. You know, nobody knows how to make someone taller or shorter uh, in, in any easy way. And so my concern is that you have this sort of bell curve and you develop an economy that is not international in nature, at least not substantially international. And, you know, to be fair, of course, in the 18th century, you could argue there was even more international trade than there is now. But you develop this economy, and there are people in the bottom third of the IQ ladder who are doing relatively low-rent jobs. And it's perfectly fine, perfectly appropriate for what it is that they can bring to the table. Uh, You know, this is sort of the low-rent manufacturing and sweeping and stuff like that. And that's how the economy develops. And then suddenly... There's this giant scimitar sweep and huge sections of generally lower IQ jobs 
tend to get outsourced to some other country. And it creates a gaping hole. And then, of course, everyone says, well, they're just retrained for X, Y, or Z. Well, no. If you've got an IQ of 85, nobody's got a magic pill to flowers for Algernon you up to the stratosphere as far as intelligence goes. And if, if the lower IQ jobs are just shipping relentlessly overseas, what happens to those people. Well, now the answer generally has been, well, we got unemployment insurance, we got disability, we've got welfare, but that is not a sustainable solution. And I don't know what the answer to that is, uh, but that to me is a is a big problem. All you know, the fifty thousand jobs, uh, manufacturing jobs every month that have been leaving the U.S. for the past number of years. Well, that's 50,000 people. What, are they just going to go and become opera singers or are they going to become like YouTube stars and so on? That's not a valid option for a lot of these people. So my concern is that what happens to less intelligent people as the economy? I mean, you know, smart people are nimble. They can adjust. They can adapt and so on. But that to me, I don't know what the answer to that is. You could say, well, okay, they could just take lower salaries to to keep the jobs local and so on. But I don't know the particular answer to that. I don't like the idea of the welfare state solving the problem because it just creates more problems in the long run. I don't know if voluntary charity is going to be enough to cover it, but that I think is a particular issue. Well, are you familiar with – you probably are. Have you read Douglas Adams' Life, the Universe, and Everything? It, the more I look around at the current state of the global economy, the more it looks like the USA is living in what they call the BRC economy. You know, in, in the story, uh, the, the, they were told that their world was going to blow up. And so they sent out these ARCs. And the B arc was filled with all of the completely useless people, the, the telephone sanitizers, for example. And uh, they crash-landed on a planet and promptly decided to um, make their currency uh, the leaves of trees. And they were all really happy because now they were all super rich. And, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a funny, uh, it's a funny story, but it's actually a little scary from our perspective, because if you look at it, you know, and you look at what we do in in the United States, you know, I remember even 15, 20 years ago, I was I was driving with my dad, and he said, you know, nobody actually does anything anymore. He's like, I own a hundred million dollar company, and we've got one hundred and fifty employees, and maybe ten of them actually do something. The other one hundred and forty are just basically moving information from one place to another. And, uh, and, and he was, so he was you know, ahead of his time, but he was troubled by the same thing you're seeing. And you know, the, the answer from the optimists, you know, and um, you know, Dr. Miller, the, the gentleman I was debating the other night, is an optimist. Uh, he's, very, well, <laughs> he's an optimist up to one point. I'll have to tell you about it later. But you know, his, his answer is, well, we're heading into a post-scarcity world. And so... Um, you know, basically, we can all become lotus eaters, and we can all focus on our poetry and our painting, and we'll have everything that we need, um, and all of the competition and that sort of thing is essentially going to be just jockeying for status, meaningless stuff. And and given how well we live in the West, you could almost make a case for that. But the fact that there's going to be four billion people in Africa by the year 2100, that's what they're calculating. And the fact that 
The U.S. has already been invaded by 61 million people since 1965. The fact that a million people entered Germany last year, um, it, it's pretty clear that that idyllic lotus-eating uh, world is never going to come. And so my f- concern <laughs> is that uh, we have already peaked. And you know, this is something that, that I've, I mentioned in um, the book that I wrote with John Red Eagle, Cuxervative. Uh, we're already seeing that our, our countries in the West are less coherent, less capable, literally less intelligent. Um, in, in Denmark and in Britain, they have measured uh, noticeable and meaningful declines in average IQ. Um, I calculated in the book, I calculated that the United States has dropped at least four average IQ points since 1965, simply on the demo- changing demographics alone. Um, it, it's probably worse than that. And, and this is a big problem because, as um, I can't remember the guy's name, but an economist wrote a book and he demonstrated that the average national IQ is the single most important predictor of uh, its standard of living. So that indicates that you know, instead of heading for that lotus eating future, um, we're actually heading for um, a, a less, a, a, a lower standard of living and a less wealthy future, which kind of makes sense if you look at the debt situation and a lot of the other things taking place right now. Well, I mean, as you point out uh, in um, your book, Conservative, I mean, you have Hispanics pouring into the United States. Uh, according to the experts uh, we've had on this show, they have a significantly lower IQ on average than Europeans. Uh, they consistently want more and more government, and yet they are the smallest group when it comes to advocating higher taxes. So lower IQ, more government, and lower taxes. Welcome to your Central American fiscal nightmare of dissolution. And that you know, can't sustain. It cannot sustain a European civilization with massive hordes of non-Europeans. It's something that I have come to painfully and regretfully, but it does seem to be empirically unassailable. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm part Mexican myself. I, my great-grandfather uh, was Pancho Villa's uh, secretary, um, so I'm, I'm actually descended from uh, American revolutionaries and Mexican revolutionaries, which is probably why I tend to, <laughs> tend to get myself in trouble. Um, but the, you know, and I have absolutely no problem whatsoever telling people that there is no chance in hell that Hispanics are natural conservatives or that Mexicans are going to support Jeffersonian small government. I mean, for God's sake, their two largest political parties are both members of the Socialist International. And, um, and the other thing that, that people tend to forget about, and this is kind of moving away from the economics a bit, but um, Hispanics don't give a damn about the whole white, liberal, um, we should all sing Kumbaya and get along. Uh, you, you know, they're really kind of a ruthless people. And you know, if they want a neighborhood, <laughs> they'll cl- they'll cl- clean everybody else out of of the neighborhood. And so, I think that um, just on the you know, if you, if you look at the 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 sort of low level civil war that's going on in Mexico right now with the various cartels and everything, I mean, you know, we're importing that to the states already. 
you know, people aren't really aware of it yet, but it's all—it's already crossed the border in in many, uh, you know, over the past couple of years. And I'm genuinely concerned that, uh, you know, it's going to have a significant effect because the the Hispanic population is now just beginning to realize that they have the the political weight to to do what they want in the American Southwest. Well, and. Um as has been pointed out by one D. Trump, uh, a lot of the, it's 80% of the women who are coming across the border are raped on the way, right? That their mothers load them up with, with birth control pills and try and give them condoms and so on because the very high likelihood is they're going to be raped and probably raped more than once along their way into the United States. Now, um, women who have uh, very little education, who come from a very third world culture, who are repeatedly, at least once and, and usually more than once, raped along the way, what kind of citizens, what kind of mothers, what kind of cont- contributions are they going to make? All the sympathy in the world. It's a terrible, terrible situation. But you cannot build a sort of Western um, Republican-style democracy on those kinds of foundations. No, and, you know, I think one thing that we are learning, both uh, historically and scientifically, is that uh, equality is more of a delusion than a myth. I mean, it, it's not even an ideal. I mean, I understand that, that it, it was an ideal um, and it was very important to a lot of the Enlightenment folks, but even then, it, it was not really intended to be applied quite as broadly as, as they made it sound for rhetorical purposes. Well, and but, they didn't have much exposure to other races and cultures in any particularly foundational way. No, they didn't, and and you know it was it was very troubling to me, and, and and it really irritated a lot of people when I first started writing about this. But you know, I noticed you know growing up in Minnesota, uh, which a, a lot of people don't realize it's 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 very German Scandinavian left wing. Um, you know, the most left wing university in the country for decades was the University of Wisconsin Madison. Um, you know, all the socialist labor, labor leaders and Torsten Veblen and you know, all those folks, that's where they were. And, and they, they planted the seeds in upspring over 100,000 Somalis, which get Obamacare voted in. Well, well but, but even before that, and obviously that is a, a train wreck just waiting to happen. I mean, I, I'm still waiting for, um, I, I, I guarantee you, one of the next big SJW campaigns is going to be to change the name of a town in Minnesota. Because in some, either in some unfortunate quirk of fate or uh, a very mischievous uh, federal bureaucrat decided that they would take the Liberians who were um, you know, coming, uh, immigrating and they would put them all in the small Minnesota town of Coon Rapids. And so I'm just waiting for I'm just waiting for the media to discover that. And you know they're gonna go berserk, despite the fact that it's been called Coon Rapids since its inception because it has raccoons. But you know, they they do the settlements and you know you know no one's going to hesitate to have a fit over that one. But anyhow, getting back to the um Getting back to the, um, the the national thing I was mentioning, you know the the Scandinavian emigrant or immigrants 
who arrived in the the um, you know, late 19th century and, and early 20th century, um, they did not fundamentally understand the rights of Englishmen. They don't understand limited government. If you look closely at the, you know, we, people talk about, oh, well, um, immigration is going to be okay because we've had past waves of immigration and people eventually integrated and that sort of thing. But they didn't really. They, they didn't, you know, the, the Irish, the Italians, the Jews, uh, the later Germans, and the Scandinavians, none of them truly understood the concept of limited government. None of them truly accepted it. You know, they, I mean, they, they learned the national anthem, they fought in the wars and all that sort of thing. They were, you know, they were on one level, you know, indistinguishable from other European Americans, but their national cultures and their uh, traditions and so forth fundamentally altered what used to be the Anglo-American traditions. And so um, I, I think that the the true costs of immigration are actually political and cultural. Mm. And, and I think that uh, those earlier waves actually harmed the United States much more than anyone really understands at this point in time. And I think it's become, going to come, become more obvious as we see all the Hispanics voting for the, you know, their, their customary PRI socialism. And as we see the, uh, you know, the various Africans and, and Arabs, um, you know, moving towards their preferred ways of government. Well, I mean, it, and it's in hindsight for myself, it's embarrassing how long and how hard a climb it was to get to this particular summit because um, all I had to do was really ask myself, okay, let's say that I move to Somalia, as some people have recommended. But if I move to Somalia, how long would it take for myself and my family, let's say a whole bunch of us move to, how long would it take for us to be completely assimilated into local Somali culture and to not have any of sort of the, the historical cultural references that I came with? And I think the answer is, well, pretty much never. Uh, and and that is particularly the case when there are racial differences, but even when there are strong cultural differences. Well, look, look, look what I'm wearing right now. I'm I'm wearing a Minnesota Vikings T-shirt. I've been living in Europe now for something like what seventeen, eighteen years. Um, yeah, no, I mean I'm I'm pretty well acculturated. I I, I speak the language. Um, you know, I play for the the football club. Um, I, I've, I've been a coach of the, I'm sorry, that's, that's confusing to a lot of people. Um, oh, the soccer, the soccer, soccer club. club. There we go. Yeah. Just wanted <laughs> so- to make sure. Cause otherwise okay. it's like, what, what do you do? That football. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm integrated to that extent that I've, right. I call that football. Anyhow. Um, but there is still fundamentally a, I mean, there's a f- huge, massive difference between me and the natives. There is still a distinct and observable difference between our kids and the natives and and there always will be i mean uh, my favorite story was i was i was sitting down um with this woman we were just chatting it was it was approaching sunset and you know people here like to live well so it was it was, it was just about time to break out the the prosecco and um she was sitting there and and she said something about how you know how well we had really been accepted by by the village and I said, yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, it's really great. And she said, yeah, but, you know, we'll always be strangers. And I said, well, 
what do you mean will always be strangers? She said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not from this village. Um, I, you know, I've been here for 25 years and I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm still a stranger. I said, oh, okay, well, you know, where are you originally from? And I was expecting her to, to name a province that, you know, was on the other side of the country or something. <laughs> she named literally the next village over, which was so close that I could just about throw a rock and hit it. <laughs> right. So, you know, the, the, the idea that, that, that we're all the same, we're all interchangeable and that sort of thing, it just doesn't translate to the local level at all. I mean, I mean it's so, especially over here in, in Europe, um, there's what we call uh, town names. Like, basically, each town has a name that uh, an inordinate number, percentage of the town all have that name. Like, for example, um, in, one, uh, in one town, uh, 10 of the 11 starting players and the coach were all named Bernasconi. And, and, and the, the weird thing is, you can actually tell, like, they, they, you can sometimes tell where, what town somebody's from by their, physic, by their face. Like, they, they all look kind of the same. You know, I mean, fortunately, none of them have that Innsmouth look. But, um, you know, and so I, I think that, that the idea, this, this relatively new idea in human history that we're all fungible, we're all exchangeable, you can put a Mexican in Korea and he'll become a Korean within five years, uh, you, you know, I think it's absolutely and utterly absurd. Well, and it's one of these things that is relentlessly promoted by the left, but the left doesn't even believe it at all. Because if the left really believed it, the, where, where are the left most in dominance, arguably in the media, particularly in the print media, in the media and in academia? And right. I know this as a libertarian uh, who was trying to make my way through Canadian academia, just endless resistance. So what they should say is the, the, the reporters, like 97% of the Washington reporters vote Democrat. Well, they should just say, well, we'll hire the best person. So he's a Republican. Don't worry. After a couple of years with us, he'll just become a Democrat. Or they should do that in academia and say, well, you know, we, 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 we value diversity, so we should bring a lot more conservatives or right-wingers or libertarians or free market people into our socialist paradise of academia. But they never want to do that. And why? Because they know that that's a challenge. They're not into diversity. They're not into multiculturalism. And they certainly don't believe that people are fungible. They can't even stand to have people with differing viewpoints around them. That's a good point. And, but, you know, as you know, I, I wrote a book based on the premise that SJWs always lie. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a surprise. It's just, you know, and to me, it's somewhat disappointing that so many people on the right still try to finesse the issue. In, instead of, you know, grabbing the nettle by the thorns and saying, you know what, equality does not exist. You know, you know I, I mean, I, I point out, equality does not exist in any material, scientific, legal, spiritual sense. I mean, I mean even, even if, you know, even when you're dealing with something like a, as purely apparently hypothetical as religion, I mean, and, and not even not just religion, theology. Even in theology, you know, they they talk about all are equal. Uh, there's no Greek or Jew; all are equal in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, if you're not, and you're damned, there's no equality. You, you know, there's there's so there's there's no equality in 
any aspect of the human condition. And, and so, yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. So, so, and even in the legal side, you know, we distinguish between different classes of people and, and different in many different ways. And so, you know, equality is not a rational ideal. It doesn't exist in any sense at all. And, and you know, we might as well be devoting, trying to devote our legal system to leprechauns and unicorns. Yeah, or ensuring not that everyone has the same opportunity to grow, but everyone ends up the same height. And there is another sort of aspect to this multiculturalism as well, is that once you're aware of, you know, the IQ differences, the biological differences, the cultural differences, the parenting style differences. Um, you know, one of the things that um, Guy who's been on the show, uh, Lloyd DeMoss has pointed out, is that a lot of the Enlightenment came out of significant improvements in child raising to the point where children weren't being tortured and beaten all the time. When you have relatively child-friendly cultures like the West has become, in particular Europe, but also Canada, to, to a smaller degree, uh, in America, in the South in America, it's harsher for kids. But when you have more child-friendly cultures, uh, children grow up more rational. They grow up happier. They grow up better able to negotiate because they're negotiated with by their parents for many years before they get out into the marketplace. When you have child-hostile cultures coming into child-friendly cultures, the child-hostile cultures will do poorly because the whole society has been set up for more child-friendly cultures. So the child Hostile cultures, you know, where they yell, they beat, they threaten with hell, they rape, they torture. Not all, of course, but, you know, there is that general problem. And certainly child abuse in some cultures is vastly higher than in other cultures. Cultures that move into the more child-friendly cultures will do worse. And then, as a white male, you get the joyful expectation of being called a, a racist and a sexist and a bigot because there is inequality of outcome. Now, that is one of the things that I find least appealing about multiculturalism as it currently stands, which is that there are groups that on average are going to do much worse when they come into Western European-based cultures, which is bad enough. You know, I think setting groups up for failure is pretty bad to begin with. But what adds insult to injury is that then white males are going to get blamed for all of the discrepancies. And that I find particularly reprehensible because you know, my daughter's going to grow up in a culture where she's going to be told that I'm a bad guy because people who come from Somalia to Minnesota aren't flourishing. Well, I think, I think there are bigger causes for concern than that. I mean, I, I, the thing that I'm concerned about is war. You know, one of the, one of the series that I edit, I have, I have the privilege of being uh, Jerry Pornell's assistant editor for the revived There Will Be War series. And, you know, we, we had Martin Van Creveld, who is the, the great Israeli military historian, take a look at the question of war and migration. And he, he's a brilliant guy. I mean, he's so much so that uh, it's, it's been said that you can't understand Clausewitz today unless you read him. Um, and he really startled us because he came back with an essay that was fundamentally demonstrated that migration and war are synonymous, that migration is a form of war, and it is intimately tied to war in, in both causal and consequential manners. And, you know, so the, the, the idea that multiculturalism uh, is going to end in anything but, you know, ethnic cleansing and you know, deportations, if we're lucky, you know, that's, that's the positive outcome. Um, that's, that's really what I'm concerned about. And especially over here in Europe, 
you can see it coming. I mean, the in, in Sweden, uh, the governor or you know some uh, official was complaining about how the refugee centers keep getting burned down. You know, in in uh, Germany, six hundred some refugee centers were burned down last year. I mean, six hundred—that's not a, a small number. But as my wife pointed out, she said, "If they're upset now, just wait till they start doing it with people in them." Yeah, and that and that's going to. Ha- I mean, I can tell you right now, that's going to happen. You know, we we are seeing this. Um, but you know, we're we're not in Scandinavia, but we're already seeing the sons of Odin. You know, the the that's kind of the um, nationalist resistance. Um, it started in Finland, but we're already seeing the sons of Odin down in the south. And, well, and that uh, comes to that fundamental question is where do white people go in the end, right? I mean, the, the, whether we like it or not, the basic fact is that white flight is reality. And if you look at the demographics, the statistics, the crime rates, it's not that hard to figure out. When certain minorities move into a neighborhood, the crime rate goes through the roof, welfare consumption goes through the roof, single motherhood goes through the roof, dysfunction goes through the roof, and white people flee which is why Detroit was the jewel of American capitalism and the richest, the richest city in America in the 1950s. And now it's a smoking crater Democrat-run hellhole of unbelievable dysfunction and debt and violence. As right. Chicago's and, and, and going yet, that way. So where do, where do white people go? At some point, you know, there are now places in Europe uh, where white people can't go. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the video of that Australian 60 Minutes crew that tried to go into little Somalia – uh, and uh, a guy drove over their foot. They were beaten up. The camera was smashed. You can't go there. And the police said this. We don't go in there. We don't go. This is no longer. It's not part of Europe anymore. And this is going to continue until when? Until when? Well, I can tell you until when. It'll, it'll, hap- it'll go. Uh, th- there's, I- I've been saying for a while that uh, it, it, you know, after the last election cycle, I said in two more election cycles, um, the nationalists will come to power. We're already seeing that, you know, that election in Austria where the Freedom Party looks likely to win the presidency. Um, in France, the National Front is on the rise. Um, in Germany, Alternative for Deutschland is, is rising fast. It looks like Britain is going to vote to leave the European Union. Um, so if we're lucky, the, um, not the next round of parliamentary elections, that there, there's going to be a big advance next year. Or in the next round, but the mainstream parties are going to band together to keep the nationalists out. So, you know, the same way the in France, the the right wing conservative party and the socialists are teaming up to keep Marine Le Pen and, and uh, national and um, the National Front out. Um, they're going to be able to do that in the next round, but the one after that, all the the Sweden Democrats, all the all the true nationalist parties will t- take power. If we're lucky, the reason I say if we're lucky is because those nationalist parties are the responsible ones. They will do things like start expelling. They'll they'll start deporting people, um, but they'll do it in a humane manner. You know, they're they're not Nazis. I mean, they get called Nazis even more mm-hmm. than than we do, but they're not Nazis. They're not neo Nazis. They're just nationalists. Um, the scary thing is if the mainstream parties manage to somehow keep them out, um, whether it's through subverting democracy or, or you know, any number of ways. Um, Contested that, elections, uh, brokered conventions, right. you name it. Exactly. Um, 
if that happens, it could get really ugly really fast. Because you know, a lot of Americans like to you know, talk about Europe as if, oh, Europe's done. You know, we, we saw on the news that in Brussels it's terrible, blah, blah, blah. What they don't realize is that the Europeans did something that is either rather clever or rather evil, which is they basically put all the foreigners into ghettos. So what that means is if they wanted to seal those things off and leave them sealed off or, or clean them out or whatever, they could do it very, very quickly and very, very easily. And, um, and the history of, of, you know, the history of European ruthlessness is not limited to Germany. I mean, in the, I don't know if you heard about the Algerian riots in the sixties in France. Um, you know, there, there's a, the Algerians were rioting about something or other. And so the chief of police went and uh, handcuffed something like 60 of them and threw them all, had them all thrown in the river. They all drowned. Um, I mean, the sort of thing that would have, you know, just convulsed the U.S. In, in, at that time. Um, the French looked into it and gave him a medal. And so, you know, that's my concern for Europe is that if the nationalists, if the civilized nationalists don't take power, then the more ruthless um, ultra-nationalists will take power. And they've made it pretty clear that um, you know, they intend to uh, let Europe be Europe uh, one way or another. Well, and this is what is so astounding and, and what just makes me so angry at the left. And, and I'm neither right nor left, but right now the left is pissing me off a lot more than the right. And what, what drives me nuts is the degree to which they say, these are far-right parties. Far-right parties. Listen, I've studied European history. I know what a far-right party looks like. And it's not a party that accepts multiculturalism as a concept. It's not a party that says, yeah, giant welfare state. We've got no problem with that. Massive income redistribution, massive control of trade, massive government. That is not a far-right party. Because generally, the party that is called far-right in Europe accept everything, they just say, well, you know, we don't want that many refugees and maybe we can sort of speed up this process of either finding people a home or getting them back to where they came from. That is not far right. That's left with enforcing existing laws. But to call it far right, if they then scare the general population into not accepting any of the arguments from the supposedly far right, you will see, I think, as you point out, some honest to goodness far right parties coming in and that will be a very unpleasant thing for everything involved. Yeah, you know, I think it's in. Um, it's kind of funny because in Hungary, I think it is, they complain about um, they complain about uh, you know the far right party there, and you know that because it just I think they just recently came to power or something, but there's another party that is nearly as strong, nearly as popular, and is much much harsher. Um, I mean. To the extent that they have like a paramilitary uh, adjunct called the Iron Guard, <laughs> you know, and and it's like, look, you understand. I mean, what what they clearly don't understand. I mean, obviously, if if they were capable of thinking logically and 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 if they had longer time preferences, they wouldn't be idiot leftists. But the problem is that they just don't see is that look, if you if you somehow manage to keep out the the more centrist parties 
the the parties that that you're really scared of, your worst nightmare parties, are the ones that are going to take over next. You know, there's no. I mean, it's like with Donald Trump. What's going to happen to the Republican Party if they manage to keep Donald Trump out? Whoever comes along next is not going to be quite as affable and and uh, is not going to be the the figure of fun that Donald Trump is. And Americans are going to respond to them simply because they know that the 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 process is rigged against them. Well, and and you know we we can look at the example of. Um Brazil. Brazil used to be 65% European and was a relatively civilized country. And now down to about 45% and has turned into a third world hellhole. I mean, it is just the way. And I think people need to sort of understand that that, that train is coming uh, without specific and, and significant action. Uh, but do you think, Vox, do you think that Europeans have them in it uh, anymore? Like I remember when I was a kid, so I'm, I'm half German. And when I was a kid in England, we would have my German relatives come over, my cousins and all of that. And, of course, we were British kids, so we were playing war and guns all the time. And my German cousins, oh, you know, we can't, we're not allowed to play with guns. We can't touch guns. You know, the, the past, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm half Irish, half German, which means I regularly get the urge to self-flagellate myself about my past while drinking. But do you think that the Europeans have it in them to assert any cultural relevance at all? I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever. The... Um, well, you're on the ground, so I'll take comfort in that. It's been a while. No, look, look, look up, a, look, look up a video that the Sweden Democrats put out. It's called "Europe Belongs to Us." Listen, I mean, you know, they're speaking in their own languages, but but look at their look at their faces when when they're when they're talking. Look at look at the, I mean, the the younger generation of Europeans that are not caught up in all the you know, welcome refugees thing. Um, frankly, they're a little bit scary. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm around a lot of teenagers because you know, the way that the, the soccer club thing works, you're all members of the same club. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a seven-year-old kid or a 50-year-old veteran, you all belong to the same club. And so there's a sort of you know, just you, you have a little bit more contact, a little bit more. Um, you talk to them occasionally, you know, when you run into them wherever. And, and, and so, you know, the way that the European kids talk is considerably more what one would call racist than anything you hear in the States. I mean, probably more than you would have heard in the, you know, segregated South the the anger is is intense yeah you know, i see it on my the, videos whenever this topic comes up it's like page after page of like wow please somebody start listening to these people so we can avoid catastrophe right and and, and you know I, I mean i remember um like i told you about the sons of odin the reason i knew about it the first i heard about it was some of the kids on the at, at the practice the, the one of the kids teams was practicing at the same time as our vets team and they were all talking about like how they'd seen the sons of odin like the sons of odin are here i mean these this is a generation that um feels absolutely no white guilt it's a generation that feels lord be praised (laughs) but but it's The, it's, the great curse is lifted well but because the thing is that they've grown up 
dealing with the multicultural situation. You know, for for people like you and for and 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 me, um, you know, we grew up in in mostly you know very heavily white backgrounds. I mean, I grew up in in Minnesota, which was like ninety eight percent white at the time, and um, you know, and even though you know, and the part that wasn't white was Indian, you know, Chippewa and, and, and whatever. And, and so, um, we, when we, we always have this fundamental attitude that it's always going to be like that because it always was like that. They don't have that. You know, they fundamentally feel a sense of, of, of national competition, cultural competition, um, you know, I mean, it's 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 really remarkable, and like I said, even for somebody who is an avowed nationalist like myself, you know, and and people say, well, are you a white nationalist? Are you what? I I said I'm an everything nationalist. I support all nations and their rights to exist. I'm an Israeli nationalist. I'm a German nationalist. I'm an Irish nationalist, and I'm a Indian nationalist because I absolutely support red segregation, <laughs> being an Indian, but. Um, but the, the, the main thing is that, um, I mean, even though I do think it's a positive sign that, um, it's still having, you know, the, the cultural burden that I do having, you know, all the, the inherent assumptions that we have about what is normal, what is civil and what is nice and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I just, I hear them talk about things and I just think, Wow. People have no idea what's coming. Well, and and certainly, I mean, I I grew up, um, I guess, fa- fairly multicultural, but um, it was the first wave of immigrants, and um, from the sort of the studies and the experts that I've conducted and the, the people I've talked to, the first wave of immigrants are the creme de la creme because they're the people who can't stand living in these low rent countries and come to right. the West because they have a very smart and very ambitious and so on. But as has been noted. In England, the second generation, third generation, well, it's the regression to the mean. Like, I hate to say it, but it's like, Precisely. wow, you know, these these Chinese players who came over with the basketball team, wow, Chinese people are huge. They're so tall. And then, you know, the, the generations go on and it doesn't sustain. And so the first the first wave, it, it's, it's one of these things, it's almost like set up by nature to be really confusing and annoying and frustrating to everyone. Because why would you ever want to complain about IQ 120 people coming from anywhere in the world and setting up in your society? They're great, law-abiding, they're, they're, they contribute, they're, they're professionals, they're respectful, they're, you know, but then there's this regression to the mean where you tend to go back to the IQ of the source nation and it's like, oh boy, by the time they're embedded, we've got Lots of problems, and maybe that's more what the younger people you're talking to are reacting to. Well, I think that people tend to forget where homogenous nations come from. You know, we don't have homogenous nations because people all lived uh, physically separated from each other by mountains and rivers. (laughs) You know, people, for some reason, people seem to have this idea that, you know, Nobody ever went anywhere, and and um, you know, despite the fact that if you you know if you're familiar with history, you know you're aware that you know the Normans were down in Sicily and the the Turks were up in Vienna and and whatnot. But um, the reason we have homogenous nations is because <coughs> periodically um, people kill each other in large quantities, and if they don't. 
kill each other, they physically force them to move. You know, <clears throat> one of the largest human migrations in the last 200 years took place in Europe. And it was the forced deportation of 12 million Germans from the Slavic countries. You know, something like they, they think that as many as 2 million Germans may have died in the process. Um, you know, you never hear about that. Um, in Yugoslavia, the, you know, the, the, the Bosnians and the Serbs used to be considerably more intermingled. But once the Bosnians started off, and it was the Bosnians who started it, not the Serbs, um, you know, you had the usual ethnic cleansings and killings and all that sort of thing. And so I am absolutely and utterly furious with the left, with the people who talk about equality and multiculturalism and that sort of thing, because given the level of ethnic and cultural intertwinement, I think that the amount of blood that is going to be on their hands, that, it, that the, the, the genuine culpability that they have for this is off the charts. And, um, and that's why I'm very, uh, I'm very pessimistic about, I mean, when we talk about you know, free trade and, oh, 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 this is the funny part I have to tell you about the, the debate. So you got to keep in mind, Dr. Miller is a, he's a, a very smart guy. He's a very upbeat, positive guy. You know, every, I mean, I personally thought all of his arguments were fundamentally naive and Pollyannish. And sorry to interrupt. I just want one quick question. And yeah. he is a professor at a university. Yeah, he's a professor at Smith College. So he's not that much into the free market himself, since he likes operating from within a government protected cartel where he can't be fired. Well, actually, yeah, it's, it's good I for mean, other that's... people. He's, he's very keen on the free trade for other people, but for himself, he kind of wants to be a mercantilist. Well, he, well, he's actually quite interesting because they tried to get rid of him even though he was tenured uh, because he's a conservative. And so he, he's, he's an interesting guy. I, I, I quite enjoyed that. Uh, I mean, you'll, I, I sent you a copy. You'll have to read it. It's, it's pretty interesting. But the, the funniest part is, you know, after going through all this, you know, Pollyanna, naive, everything's going to be fine as long as we just have free trade, blah, blah, blah. Um, we get around to discussing the singularity because we've been talking about post-scarcity. We've been talking about the same problem that you talked about with what are we going to do with all the you know, non-productive people and so forth. And, and he says, well, you know, the, the one problem with the singularity is that the chances are pretty good that the machines are just going to kill us all anyway. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Yeah. Where, like, where did that? Where Man, did they that must come? have one sinister toaster. I'm telling you that. <laughs> wow! It, it was just hilarious. After after literally an hour and a half of positivity, suddenly, well, you know, it really doesn't matter because the machines are coming for us. I don't know. I mean, this idea that machines are going to kill us all, the idea that we create these things that are supposed to serve us that end up ruling us—that's just um, people's unconscious idea about government. But that's perhaps a topic for another time. <laughs> Anyhow, so, listen. I, it, but it just uh, you, remi- there was another point you were just going to finish off, though. Yeah, well, it, it just what you were saying about how um, all of these issues with regards to multiculturalism and, and ethnic conflict and so forth, you know, I, I mean, how do we tie that together with free trade? You know, it's, it's almost like two different worlds that, that we're talking yeah. about. And, I don't and, think so, because I, I, sorry to interrupt, but I think in a free, the question is, how is this multiculturalism even, 
economically effective. How, how is it even possible? If you, if you have people with the same cultural background, with the same values, with the same language, with the same history, that is so economically efficient, it's ridiculous. Like learning, and if I went to Japan and had to start podcasting in Japanese, I'd lose like 10 years of my life's productivity, just becoming nuanced enough to do what I'm doing now, but in Japanese. And then right. I'd have to find some way of tying it all into their cultural references and their jokes and their humor and their weird aficionado focus on sex robot. I, I, I couldn't like I couldn't possibly. So how is multiculturalism even occurring? And it's occurring because it's subsidized by governments. That's Agreed. why it's occurring. If it wasn't subsidized with welfare, if it wasn't subsidized with Obamacare, if it wasn't subsidized with minimum wages, if it wasn't sub, like you name it, it, it it's incredibly well, subsidized. Well, the, well, the, the, it's, the government is literally, you know, plucking drowning people from the ocean and sending them in, and yeah. and, sent, and set, putting them on a train to Germany. Yeah. You know, so it, so so without massive government intervention. People tend to sort themselves into that which is culturally the most comfortable and economically the most productive. And that tends to be relatively – look, there's a reason there's a Chinatown. There's a reason there's a little Italy and a little Greece. And maybe that blends out over a certain amount of time. But multiculturalism is so ridiculously economically inefficient. I mean just the, the just take a tiny example, like the unbelievable amount of money that Canada spends because there are two official languages. I mean, if, if it was if it was left to the free market, this stuff would blend out um, and, and it would segregate and it would sort of remain in its own economically productive areas. And there'd be lots of cross-cultural references and so on. But man, oh man, immigration and multiculturalism is a government program. It has no aspect of the free market whatsoever. Free market is like Fun films to read the subtitles to or whatever, right? But immigration and, and multiculturalism and everything that's going on in Europe right now, the Schengen Agreement is a government program. The EU is a government program. Immigration is a government program. And what do government programs do? Well, right now we're in the appeasement phase of the government program, just as England and Europe was in the 1930s with regards to Germany. And when the appeasement phase ends, particularly with people of a European stock, you know, I'll tell you this. Europeans, as you know, really, really, really nice people until they're not. And then they're really, really, really not nice people. And this is the problem with all of this artificial steroid pumping up of this completely insane, let's throw the lions in with the lambs zoo called Europe. It is going to blow up. And it's my absolute goal and hope to get rational arguments out as wide and as far and as hard as possible so people know the facts so that it can be a controlled explosion, because that's the best we can hope for now, in my opinion. If it wasn't, if it wouldn't sound blasphemous, I would say hallelujah. So I'll just say <laughs> preach, preacher. <laughs> I, I I just talked to uh, Diamond and Silk today, so I, I got some preaching bottled up. I had to like let them do all the preaching, which was uh, a lot of fun. It's so like no, I think free trade, uh, free trade, and free movement, and so on. It's all been violated by everything the governments are doing. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say you're like the libertarian version of a Southern Baptist preacher. <laughs> Amen. Testify. <laughs> But no, I, 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 I'm open to that. You know, I, I mean, the, the question, of course, is, is can we get there from here? Um, how do we get there from here, you know, w without a uh, absolutely horrific scenario? And, and it, it's looking increasingly unlikely. I mean, you know, there's a reason why Jerry Pornell revived 
his his series there will be war you know the, it it ended in 1989 because the whole series was focused on the Soviet Union and war with that and you know it's kind of depressing when you think about it you know i was listening to some music from like the very late 80s very early 90s and there's that beautiful song by Jesus Jones um you know right here right now and it talks about watching the world wake up from history yeah. and it, it, it's such an intelligent song and it's such a hopeful, optimistic song, you know, the Berlin Wall coming down and the, just how hard it was to believe that this was happening. And, and it's so frustrating, you know, to, to look back on the kind of, of hope that we had for the future and then see what it turned into. And well, it, it's a basic fact of history that there are always more assholes. You know, True. hey, we've defeated the assholes. We're free of assholes. Look, we defeated the Nazis. Oh, wait, what, communism? Oh, we've defeated communism. Oh, what, Islam? There are always more assholes coming around. And hopefully, at, you know, at some point in a couple of hundred years, we'll be out of assholes. But we're a long way from peak assholery at the moment. No, clearly. And, and of course, then you look at the behavior of the, the U.S. government over the past 20 years, and you start going, well, are we the assholes now? Yeah, yeah. You know? The assholes are calling from inside the house. I mean, it was it was really it was really uh, that's good actually. Uh, <laughs> um, it was very eye opening to uh, be in Serbia and and working with some Serbs and get their perspective on uh, what had happened. And you know, there was no question that the U.S. government made that whole situation vastly worse than it than it should have been. And um, and so, you know, you look at, at, I mean, we have to get our own houses clean, whether we're talking about Canada, whether we're talking about the USA, whether we're talking about the European nations. You know, we, we have to uh, return and embrace, uh, return to and embrace some of the uh, old ideas that, 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 you and I and a lot of other people are not necessarily all that comfortable with whether we're talking about tr- you know traditions, whether we're talking about um, uh, the old ideas of liberty, whether we're talking about getting rid of uh, false ideas like equality. Um, you know, we need to stop dancing around and pussyfooting around and speaking part of the truth because the other part of the truth is too uncomfortable. You know, well, no. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say I, one of the things that I like. Uh, you, you know, I'd, I'd heard about you obviously before we uh, did that show a, a, a month ago or whatever. And you know, one of the things that I'd, I'd heard about you that I liked was that um, you have a propensity for telling uncomfortable truths. And I think that that we need more of that. We need more people like you and like Chernovich and like Milo who are pissing people off simply because they're saying what they understand to be the truth to the best of their ability. You're not right all the time. I'm not right all the time. None of us are right all the time. But the more that we can uh, speak out and, and, and make it clear, make, make a clear, strong case that is compelling to, to more and more people – the the greater the likelihood that we can get out of this, that we can get through this, um, without it it being you know some sort of uh, history making cap- catastrophe, because you know we don't we don't want to see uh, 
you know, ethnic wars throughout Europe. We don't want to see the United States splitting into, you know, five different warring provinces or whatever. Um, we're probably going to see some of it somewhere, but, uh, you know, and, and, and for Americans, I think it's important for them to keep in mind that, you know, they've actually got statistically a bigger problem because they've got 61 million, you know, Europe is bigger than the U S is it, in terms of population, but their, their Muslim population is only 4.5%. You know, the, the Hispanic population in the United States is pushing 30%. So, um, you know, the, and, and there are other, other problems around, you know, there's problems in Asia that we're barely cognizant of, but yeah, they're dealing with some of the same demographic issues too. Well, yeah, I'm certainly not always right, but I'll be damned if I'll be wrong because I'm afraid. I mean, that is, you know, that, that is, that is the deal. If you want to be a public voice, you have to use whatever verbal weapons you can to pierce through the delusion that destroys civilizations. You know, I mean, we all have a daydreaming and fantasy life and, and creativity, imagination. The denial of immediate reality is part of the genius of the species. But you got to get that Aristotelian mean, you know, you don't want to be a totally concrete guy just putting one foot in front of the other. But at the same time, you don't want to be pure platonic abstraction detached from reality. We have to find that balance. And we've swung so far towards being sucked in by leftist idealism that the empiricism is just piling up and beginning to claw down this, the, the structure. And, and leftist idealism has united so much with what we think of as civilization that when we begin to, to see the degree to which the empirical evidence of, of ethnocentric incompatibilities and bio-incompatibilities and the basic biological reality that two subspecies never continue to inhabit the same space for very long. That's what you were talking about earlier with homogenous societies. When I was a kid growing up, there were lots of red squirrels and then some asshole brought in a gray squirrel and next thing you know, there are no red squirrels because they're all competing for the same resources and in a state of society, they're all competing for control of the state just like the uh, Christian denominations did before the relative separation of church and state. So that is the deal. You've got to drag people back to reality. And when they've been dissociated from reality for so long, they do it kicking and screaming. And the pill that you know is going to heal them, they think is poison. And it is a very, very tricky operation. But if we don't do it, then you can ignore reality, uh, but nature will just wipe you out. You know, if you think the tiger is your friend and you think that the water is fire, you will get mauled to death and die thirsty. No, there's no question. And, you know, I, I increasingly don't think in terms of ideology. You know, I mean, I'm naturally an abstract thinker. Um, so ideology is, is quite comfortable for me, but more and more, I just look at it as, look, either you are a Western civilizationist or you're against it. You know, either you're for civilization or you're, you're working against it. Um, either you're a nationalist, um, or you're, working against it and in 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 all those things um i mean it's just getting to the point now where you know like ann coulter said the other day um that despite the fact that she's very strongly pro-life very strongly anti-abortion she didn't give a damn what donald trump thought about it because it doesn't matter she said if we let in you know another 30 million people who vote for abortion it doesn't matter what Donald Trump thinks because we're going to we're going to have it. The main thing is get the damn wall built. I think where a lot of us are at the moment, Vox, which is I thought we had more time. 
I, I thought we had more time to continue the conversation to chip away at the welfare state, to, to chip away at the welfare warfare state. I, I thought we had more time, and I've got this, oh, it's a multi-generational change and so on. So what I thought we had more time, then I was willing to be more strategic. But I think, as Ann Coulter points out, we're out of time. Yep. You know, like if we even want the conversation of Western civilization to continue, we got to have some walls. If if we want any of the negotiations and, and challenges and debates to continue, there cannot be an overwhelming propensity of uh, anti-European sentiment, which is what's going to happen when you get third world people into the country. And so that is... You know, we've gone from strategic to tactical and the people being kind of bewildered in my show because I've been talking about long-term solutions for many years and suddenly, you know, it's like, okay, uh, forget the, you know, forget the long-term view. We've got some immediate stuff uh, to do. We're not designing third-generation weapons now. We've got to grab some shells. And that is challenging for people. And, and it's if you don't know the demographics and if you don't know the race and IQ and if you don't know, I mean, then it is confusing to people. But nonetheless, uh, she's saying, look, if we're going to even continue to have any kind of debate – then we have to find some way to stop this incursion from, from Mexico because then there's no possibility of having a debate because uh, everybody who's on the right will be outvoted by everyone on the left and that's it for the history of America. So, yeah, it, it is a bit of a switch and, and I'm glad that, that we're able to have these kinds of conversations. Again, this is not where I came from intellectually and uh, you know, I think back to certain podcasts I did even sort of six or seven or eight years ago before the demographic winter facts came in and before the massive... And, and immigration was kind of hidden from us as a whole. You know, I, I look at the immigration right. statistics on America and I'm like, damn, I had no idea. I had no idea there was this, you know, quarter million Muslims coming in a year. And like, that's mental. So anyway, I'm glad we're able to have these conversations. And, I'm, you know, I invite people to, you know, call into my show and, and, and provide feedback in the comments below. I always wanted to get as well-rounded an approach to these things as possible. And I really do appreciate your time in having this conversation today. <laughs> Uh, it's always great talking to you, and um, you know I wish you all the best in the fight. Thanks, man. Take care.